Shavuot, one of the three Jewish festivals, Passover, Shavuot, Pentecost, and of course the Feast of Tabernacles. And every Jew who was in t- within 25 miles of Jerusalem was expected to be at each of those festivals. Jesus had told the people, his followers, his disciples, to wait until the Spirit came. Now you've seen a brilliant little video this morning about the Spirit and I have preached and taught in so much depth about the Spirit and I have just got half an hour. Acts 2 is the story of what took place in history. They've been told to wait and wait they did. They waited together and the Spirit came. Some of you may have had personal experiences or may have been in groups where the Spirit of God has turned up in a remarkable way. Sometimes it's very visual, sometimes it is very physical, sometimes it is primarily spiritual. But there's a strong sense on my spirit, and certainly two or three people have already uh, concurred on that, that we can expect the Spirit of God to turn up this morning. Okay? So we're in good hands, and here's the spirit of order, okay? God's order, not our order. God's order. When the Spirit comes, as he did on the day of Pentecost, remarkable things happen. I'm not going to get locked into expounding Acts 2 because I've got something rather different to do with you. But it is a remarkable story of how God comes by his Spirit, the paraclete, the Spirit of Jesus. Don't draw a distinction between the Holy Spirit and Jesus. They are as near and yet quite separate. We're talking about Jesus in the Spirit communicating to his new body. His body wasn't there. His body was in heaven, ascended. His new body was here, of which you and I are just a very small microcosm of what is around the world. I wish I could give you a picture of all I'd seen in Uganda of the tens of thousands of people who own the name of Jesus and who know a great deal about the Holy Spirit because they've nowhere else to go, Janet, to pick up your theme from this morning. So the Spirit comes and he communicates. And lots, I, I'm supposed to be a theologian, I have read so much stuff about this remarkable happening when the Spirit came, whether it was a gift of interpretation, whether it was a gift of languages, I don't know. I did ask God for the gift of languages in relation to Greek, and he never gave it to me. I had to learn what little Greek I know the hard way. But the point is simple, and is often missed. Two things about the coming of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes... He will speak of Jesus and he will communicate about Jesus. Jesus' purpose, Jesus' person, and about the glory of God. And the Holy Spirit is the go-between God, the one who will speak to us about God, the one who interprets God, the one who makes God and Jesus totally understandable because the mystery is that he lives within you. 
Whenever God moves, there will always be confusion. There's always going to be someone who thinks they're drunk when they see a person under the control of the Spirit. I have been touched and baptized and filled with the Spirit more times than I can count. And when I'm touched by the Spirit, I am wandering around like a drunken man, quite literally, because the Spirit will manifest itself in different ways. And of course, that's not the same for everyone. We're not imposing some stricture. um, Spurgeon was down preaching on the south coast and they'd had a problem in this church and one of the deacons had fallen into serious sin and they thought it would be very good to wheel out C.A. Spurgeon to put him in his place. He was a deacon, he ought to know better, blah, blah, blah. And when he came into the meeting, because this guy had been guilty of Drunkenness, and no Christian should ever be drunk. It's not the issue of alcohol, it's the issue of drunkenness, isn't it? Out of controlness. And Spurgeon said, when, because he talked to them all, not just the person who was being disciplined, when was the last time you were so full of God that people thought you were drunk? I'm asking you a question. When was the last time you were so full of God that people wrongly thought you were drunk? I want to speak this morning in a very practical way, not expounding the text. You can go and do that yourself. That's some homework for you this afternoon. I want to speak about the practical implications of the Holy Spirit, which always seems to me much more interesting I used to have to do 20, 23 lectures with students when we did the whole teaching about the Holy Spirit, and I can't do that this morning. But I want to think about four commands in the Scripture about the Spirit. So I'm speaking to every single one of you, and I am most certainly speaking to myself. Two negative things and two positive things. The Spirit came... 2,000 years ago. Of course, the Spirit had been at work, and Mark has shown us that in that video before. But the Spirit came in a remarkable way at the gift of Pentecost. But that's all the Spirit is to many people. It's a historical event. Whereas it is meant to be a relationship. Because the first thing I want to say to you in Scripture, in relation to the Spirit, is he is a Spirit who can be grieved He can be grieved. Can I point out to you, it is not possible to grieve someone with whom you do not have a personal relationship. Right? So if you have a personal relationship with God, and I pray, I pray you do, if you do, here's the first warning. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, you're all in relationships. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. Some of us have all sorts of different ways in which we relate. But we've all got relationships. And you know and I know that it is possible for those relationships to break down, for things to go wrong. 
I remember a piece of wedding advice I was given more than 50 years ago was one of the words that everyone has to learn who's in any relationship, but particularly in relation to marriage, is sorry. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. And to grieve the Holy Spirit, you would do something that would offend the Spirit of God. Now, I'm not going to stand and delineate what those are. If I have grieved my wife, and sadly in 50 years that has happened more than once, and the number is big, I'm aware of it. I don't want to go near her. Being a man, I'm very good at playing the huff and the self-righteous and the pride. But if it's me that's been wrong, and in a sense it doesn't matter who's wrong in the final analysis, the issue has to be dealt with. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit of Jesus. You will hear him speaking to you. I've had to go through this myself in the last 10 days. I've been a Christian for since the age of 15 and I'm 74, so you can do your maths. And there was an area where I knew I was wrong. Trying to justify it, but no. I had to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I have grieved you. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. One of the great Old Testament, uh, New Testament saints said, We may hurt or anger one who has no affection for us, but we can only grieve a person who loves us. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Secondly, don't, mind you, if you want the reference, by the way, so you can go and check that. I'm expounding Ephesians 4, verse 20. Secondly, don't quench the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19. Now, I never did the scouting thing. I was a boys' brigade officer in Nigeria. And I did a little bit of boys' brigade in this country before I went until they discovered I had two strange left feet and uh, wasn't particularly good at that. But we did some interesting things. And in a sense, I want to say this, don't quench the Holy Spirit is even more serious than grieving the Holy Spirit. Now, I know how to make a fire in the bush in Africa and I also know how to put a fire out in the bush because it's really important. The more important you know how to put a fire out than it is to actually make one because fire spreads so easily. Don't grieve the spirit. Don't quench the spirit. Do you know how to put a fire out? Well, there's two simple ways. I'm a scientist originally. Number one, all you do is take away the stuff that's burning. Right? Take away the fuel. And the second way is to get a great big bucket of water and pour it full over it. Dampen it, really dampen it. And maybe you need to do both. 
don't quench the Holy Spirit. It was Martin Luther who said that coming together on Sunday was like individual coals coming together and being ignited and being inflamed together. So if you keep yourself away from fellow Christians, and if you keep yourself away from God, you're withdrawing the fuel of your own spirituality. Remember, I've told you, Augustine, love letters from God. And some of us spend more time watching reality television than reading that. And I'm not talking about legalistic insight. I'm just saying, how much is that part of your life? And mine. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't withdraw the, uh, the fuel that you need in your spiritual life. The scriptures, prayer, fellowship. But don't allow water to be thrown onto your spirit. And Satan has a way of doing that. Of disturbing and deflecting. And disappointing you. It might be another person. It might be a leader. It might even be yourself. Done enough counseling work with people who can hardly bear to look in the mirror in the mornings because they know they're a total internal failure. Nobody else may know about it, but they know. So don't grieve the spirit, don't quench the spirit. Let's be positive. Thirdly, walk in the spirit. Walking is easy. I learned to do it when I was a baby. I fell down a great deal, I dare say. I have no memory of that. But I can walk now. It's ridiculously easy. Okay? You just put one foot in front of the other. I'm not consciously thinking about it when I do this. I'm just walking. That's exactly what Jesus did. He lived under the total control and in total communication with his father. And John's gospel tells us, you know it. He only did what the father showed him to do. You go into Galatians 5 and look at that purple passage about the fruit of the spirit It talks about, well, it actually, the Greek word can be translated either live or walk, and they're so close. If you're alive, you can walk. To walk, you've got to be alive. Same word in Greek. Walk in the Spirit. You don't become a marathon runner straight away, do you? I'm not a marathon runner. Five miles was my limit when I was really fit and playing football all the time. I can cycle for a long time, but... You've got to take one step at a time. You're not promised tomorrow, none of you, right? And neither am I. We've been celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary yesterday. And at the same time, I've been dealing with the fact I was in Uganda visiting a refugee camp. A colleague of mine, Jewish, 
English, has both passports, was doing the same thing up in Iraq, in Kurdistan provinces of Iraq, in Erbil, and was literally killed in a road traffic accident. And we have major problems to sort out in terms of the body and in terms of the funeral and in terms of the ministry. All I'm simply saying, without being wrongly focused, is you don't know about tomorrow, do you? I don't. But today, the Spirit's instruction is to walk in the Spirit. Walk in step with the Spirit. You remember Jesus talked about, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? I, I was being gently mocked yesterday for some of my little phrases, but when you're in the public eye, I suppose that goes with it. But one of the things I very often used to say when I was preaching regularly is, walk in step with Jesus, not ahead of him, because when you're ahead of him, you're taking the lead, and it's a dangerous thing to try and lead Jesus. Don't be behind him either. Just be in step with him. Like Jesus did, You need to know what the Father's instructions are. Walk in the Spirit. Thirdly, fourthly, Ephesians 5, right at the end, talks, and this is a command. In Greek, it's imperative, right? And it is present continuous. Go on being full of the Spirit. Quite frankly, there's been a a needless debate about whether being full of the Spirit or baptized in the Spirit is the same experience. I simply want to point out something to you. If this jar, and we're using it a little later, is full of the Spirit, right? And water is a theme of the Spirit. It's full, isn't it? You can see it. Your life is, you're supposed to be full of the Spirit. And yet the instruction in Galatians 5 is to go on. So if I go on being full of the Spirit, what spills from our lives when we're full of the Spirit? The Spirit, doesn't it? QED. The spiritual life is as simple as that. Well, we wish it was, don't we, Carol? We wish it was. But that's the theory. When you're full of the Spirit, if you're going on... I think I've been drinking too, wouldn't you? Well, I have, but not of alcoholic beverages. But you're urged to go on being filled... Rachel and I pray every morning after we've had breakfast together. And we always pray. We use, we use a, a Celtic compline in the evening and a morning prayer. And that's trying to balance all the various other aspects of spirituality in our lives. But one of the things we always pray, and I commend it to you, if you've never done this, is every day. Ask the Spirit of God to fill you anew. Right? It's as simple as that. So I've said four things this morning. I've said, 
Don't grieve thy Holy Spirit, that spirit that came on the day of Pentecost, that spirit that communicated and has burst out of a Jerusalem-based church all around the world, out into Iraq, out to Uganda, out to India, out to South America. There are literally, well, maybe a Maybe a third of the whole population in the whole world would claim to be followers of Jesus. Whether there are followers in the full sense. But I'm not even making that assumption about any of you here. It's easy to say words. I'm talking about people who are full of the spirit of Jesus. So we're not looking back. We are remembering the Spirit came. We are remembering that, as Janet reminded us, we're rushing very, very quickly to the return of Jesus. Did you hear that? We are rushing very, very quickly. Most of you know I did my doctoral work on Muslim-Christian relationships. And the Muslims are expecting Jesus back as Muhammad's right-hand man. That's exactly what they're expecting. We're expecting Jesus very soon. So I want to say on this Pentecost Sunday for myself and for you, it's not about looking back as a piece of history to Shavuot. They're celebrating the giving of the law. We're celebrating the giving of the Spirit. (coughs) So as I bring this to a conclusion, I want to read a word from one of the other feasts. Not Passover, not Pentecost, but John's Gospel tells us that Jesus was up in Jerusalem in John 7 at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when they used to live out in tents, just to remind them about their experience of the wilderness and their total dependence on God, and that's never a bad thing. And that took me so clearly back to the refugee camp I was in in Uganda where they were living under sheets. Very much like that. And this is what John records. And I want to then offer you a way of responding to God this morning in whatever way is right for you. I'm not telling you how to respond. This is what Jesus said. On the last and greatest day, of the feast, and I wish I had time to tell you about that feast, but I haven't. Jesus stood, and with a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That's part of the symbolism of what goes on in the Feast of Tabernacles. Whoever believes in me, as the Spirit has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this, he meant the Spirit. So I've said four things. I've said, don't grieve the Spirit. That's something you control. Okay, don't abdicate that to God. That's yours. With his strength, with his power. Don't quench the Spirit. Obey those little personal promptings that God gives you. 
walk in the Spirit and be full of the Spirit. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond in a particular way that I have personally found hugely helpful, but in no way is this directive. This is simply offering a way of responding. God can refill you with the Holy Spirit where you are sitting, right? And if he does, you will know about it. That's fine. But you may like, and in a moment, Mike, if the music group would like to join me at the front, You may like, in the privacy and the quietness, to ask the Spirit of God on this Shabbat Sunday, this Pentecost Sunday, to fill you afresh. You may, at the bidding of Jesus, like to come and take a drink, if that's appropriate for you. Please do. You may simply want to be quiet in your own seat. That's fine, too. God has his own way of dealing with all of us. That's fine. But I'm going to take a drink and I'm going to wipe the glass. And we're going to use one cup because it's one Holy Spirit. And the risk of cross-infection here is very, very slight. Take my word for it. What is important is that in ever or whatever way you hear and sense God speaking to you, you respond. Now, don't take any notice of anyone else. Let them do what's right for them and you do what's right for, for you. So Mike, if you like to lead us off, you can come and have a big drink if you want or a little drink. It's a token that God will refill us so that what Richard said to us in his prayer is that day by day we can be the people of God, whether it's in Erbil or Uganda, or Bridge North. We need to be full of the Spirit of Jesus. Thanks, Mike.